The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness. For his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Happy Wednesday evening to you, church family. It's good to be back with you after a week of vacation. Uh, let me invite you to get your copy of the scripture and turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Let me say a word about tonight's study, and I hope that will explain some things later on. Uh, yesterday afternoon here at church, I had uh, tonight's all prepared to go in a different direction. Got home last night and was reading something Got up this morning and completely changed directions that I wanted to go tonight. And it'll become clear why as we get into the study. But again, find 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. Now, before we read our text and get into our study, I do want to mention a couple of matters of great importance. Number one, remember that this coming Sunday is the deadline to turn in your deacon nomination forms. We are replacing 10 deacons, and so we're being asked to nominate a minimum of 12. Uh, those who are not elected go on to the alternates list, and so if a deacon uh, is unable to complete his term for any reason, we have alternates to call upon. That's the reason we ask you to nominate more than we actually need, and we'll take the top uh, 10 on the Sunday that we vote. So please be mindful of that and get your form in Sunday. Uh, you can, If you don't have a form yet, you can come by the church office uh, today, tomorrow, uh, Friday, and pick one up, or pick one up Sunday. Just be ready to go ahead and fill it out and turn it in Sunday. But please give attention to this, a very important issue in the life of the church. Deacons are one of our two officers mentioned in the New Testament, pastors and deacons. And so this is a very important matter, and I trust that you will give prayerful attention to it. Secondly, let me ask you to be in prayer for Jean Sullivan. She had hip surgery yesterday at University Hospital, had some difficulty in recovery, uh, with some of her levels not being quite right. She's actually going to have to be in the hospital for another couple of days. So please pray for Jean and Jerry Sullivan. Add them to your prayer list tonight. Uh, let's go ahead and open tonight with the word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, I pray tonight that you would open our hearts to the power of your word. 
that your Holy Spirit would take your word and use it to transform our lives. You promise us that your word will never return unto you void, but it will accomplish your purpose. God, we ask you to do that tonight. Lord, we do want to lift up the matter of denominations. You know that this is very important in a New Testament church. And God, we know that you have the men selected that are to serve. And I pray that that uh, our choosing would be in accordance to your will, that your will would be accomplished, and because of the men elected, that we would be a stronger church for it. We thank you for our deacons, for their model of service, the way they check on their families and minister to their families. We, we thank you for those that are about to rotate off in the years of service they've given. And so again, we do pray for their replacements that, that we would follow your will. And God, we pray that you would put your healing hand on Jean Sullivan. She means so much to our congregation. We thank you for her and for Jerry, their leadership in the Good News Clubs at the elementary schools. And we pray for your healing touch upon her life. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to read tonight from verses 6 through 8. The Apostle Paul says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Last Friday, July the 17th, something hugely significant happened that most people in the world are probably not even aware of. Dr. J.I. Packer went home to be with the Lord at the age of 93. Tonight's study I've entitled the legacy of J.I. Packer. The legacy of J.I. Packer. Again, last Friday, he passed away at age 93. I want to share some of the facts of his life contained in a tribute written in the Baptist Press this week by Dr. David Dockery. Bear with me because we're going to come back around after we talk a moment about Packer, we're going to come back around and apply it to our text this evening. Why is J.I. Packer so very important to the church today? If you're not aware of Dr. Packer, Christianity Today's readership two decades ago said that J.I. Packer and C.S. Lewis were the two most influential Christians of the 20th century. I want you to think about that. Chances are many Christians around the world probably have at least one of his books. Here at Pitts, many of our people have the ESV Study Bible. I'm actually reading from the ESV Study Bible tonight instead of reading from the NIV. And it's because Dr. Packer was the theological editor uh, of 
of the ESV Study Bible. He wrote more than 30 books and 300 articles, not counting works that he either edited or co-edited. One Christian leader has said that to get Dr. Packer's endorsement on a book that you would write would be like getting the good housekeeping seal of approval. Dr. Chuck Swindoll said that he is asked uh, quite often the 20 most influential books that he has ever read. And he said dating all the way back to the 70s, J.I. Packer's book entitled Knowing God is on that list of what he considers to be the 20 most influential books that he has ever read. Many of you probably have this classic. Uh, another book that is a classic of his is Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. And still another that is a classic, Rediscovering Holiness. Dr. Packer was very concerned that Christians live out their faith, that we be separate from the world and that we be holy. And so he wrote a book entitled Rediscovering Holiness. You may have one or more of these books. You may have some others that, that Packer wrote. Let me tell you a little bit about his life. When he was only seven years old, he was involved in a serious accident. He went out into the road, was hit by an automobile, very serious head injury. To the day he died, he had a characteristic valley, a deep valley or a large dimple from where on his forehead from where his skull had been crushed in. Because of the accident, he was not able to be involved in athletics like a lot of other young boys his age. So his mom and dad got him involved in things like reading and writing and music. He had hoped for a bicycle for his 11th birthday. But instead, he was given a typewriter to his disappointment at the time. But little did he know the plans that God had for him in that. To the day he died, he continued to type his manuscripts on a typewriter. Even though he had worn out that first typewriter, he'd gotten other typewriters, continued to type out all of his manuscripts. He loved jazz music. He would play some of the classic jazz pieces on his clarinet. He became a huge intellectual in the Christian world, but an intellectual who connected deep thinking about the Bible to everyday life. He was practical, showing that a deep thinker is not simply an egghead. But I think he would strongly endorse the view that the deeper you go in your intellect and research, being faithful to the scriptures in that, the wider the influence you are going to be able to have. And so head and heart were not divorced with Dr. Packer. He was also a classic gentleman. In this day where if someone doesn't agree with you, you attack them, that was not his way at all, folks. An example of this is that while Packer was reformed and Calvinistic in his theology, he could join hands with an Arminian 
a Wesleyan friend of his, and write together a book in 2008 called One Faith. And so he had an amazing ability to reach across the aisle. You know, we could learn a lot from J.I. Packer today. Christians today disagree about so much. I mean, just look at what's going on in the Christian world right now and how churches and Christians are responding to this virus and everybody's attacking each other if they don't agree with them about everything. They draw up battle lines. I think Packer would draw our attention to passages like Romans 14, which tells us that Christians will not agree on many things in life, but what we must do is, is agree to disagree on non-essentials and extend kindness and grace to people on the other side. That's actually a mark of Christian maturity that the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans chapter 14. You know, I wish many people on social media platforms today could model that. There's a lot of pettiness, a lot of division, which actually reveals that we're babes in Christ and we're not acting like mature men and women. People can be so proud of themselves promoting their view of non-essentials and slamming everybody else. All they have shown is that they need to grow up in Christ. They're children thinking they're important and they're mature when they're really not. Packer's life would teach us a lot about these issues. Now, I want to bring that back around to 2 Timothy 4 tonight. In this passage, Paul is reflecting on his past, his present, and his future. It's a passage that's filled with expectancy and assurance. We see from Paul's testimony here that a Christian faith that is lived out in faithfulness results in great peace and confidence. First of all, I want you to notice with me tonight words of faith about his present. Look at verse 6. He says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. There's a great deal of emotion in Paul's words here. He knows that very likely this time he's not going to be released from prison. He knows that any day now, Nero, the emperor Nero, may call upon him to be killed. And indeed, we know that Nero did do this very thing. He had the apostle Paul put to death. Tradition says that Paul was beheaded by Nero. And yet, when you look at Paul's life here and his attitude, there's no fear. There's no dread. All there is is faith and joy. Paul is reconciled to the reality of his own death. Now, folks, I hope that is true of you as well. I trust that you have the realization of your own death one day. If Jesus tarries, you and I are going to die. And when that happens, our existence is not going to be over. In fact, our eternity will just be getting underway good. Eternal life begins when we come to Christ, but, but when we die and go to heaven, eternity for us has only just begun. We'll stand before the Lord. We're not like the group that the writer Philip Yancey talks about. He describes a unique funeral custom 
conducted by a certain group of African Muslims. Close family and friends will encircle the casket and they'll quietly gaze at the corpse. There'll be no singing, no flowers, no tears. A peppermint candy will be passed out to everyone. They'll put it in their mouth and they'll wait for it to dissolve. And when the candy is dissolved, each participant at the funeral service is reminded that life for this person that they're burying is over. They believe that life just simply dissolves. No eternal life, no hope. But folks, the Bible says it much differently. In Hebrews 9.27, the writer of Hebrews says, It is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. You and I have an appointment with death. It's important for your life now that you prepare for your death later. People tend to live as though their earthly life is just going to go on forever and ever and ever. You know, Jesus told about a rich farmer like that in Luke chapter 12 in one of his stories. This guy just accumulated more and more and more, built bigger barns, and finally said to himself, soul, you've got it made. Eat, drink, and be merry. And he was told that night by God, you fool, this very night your soul shall be required of you. Folks, just because you have everything that you either need or want now is no guarantee that you will live long enough to enjoy it. What a shame that too many don't prepare for something that's going to happen to all of us. You've seen, seen the TV game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, that used to be on quite a number of years ago. If you've seen the show, you're familiar with all those lifelines. I think that's how a lot of people today view the ultimate question about life and eternity. Some choose a 50-50. They just hope they'll make it to heaven. They've got a 50-50 chance, or so they think. And what they'll do is try to do enough good deeds to increase their odds a little bit. What, what an unbiblical way to view eternity. Some phone a friend. In other words, they just do what their friends do and think what their friends think. They're counting on their friends to be right. Some ask the audience. They accept the majority view. Whatever the majority view is at the time, that's what they'll go along with. If the majority view changes later on, then they'll change with the majority view. But folks, Paul's lifeline was the Lord Jesus Christ. He had never been the same since he met Christ. Christ was the Lord of his life. Christ was his lifeline for both life and death and eternity. Christ had captured the Apostle Paul by his grace on the road to Damascus, had converted his soul, changed his life, called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. What's astounding about all that is that the Holy Spirit convicted Paul and opened his eyes before it was too late. You know, he realized he'd been a religious man. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Paul talks about all, all of the things that he had on his spiritual resume as a Pharisee. He, he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was circumcised the eighth day of the tribe of Benjamin, touching the law. He said he was blameless. But he concludes, the things that were gained to me, I now count as loss 
for the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Paul had been converted, and he spent the rest of his years and days following Christ. His life was literally poured out for the sake of the gospel. He says here in this passage, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The thought is of a libation, a drink offering. It's reminiscent of the Old Testament sacrifices. On the Day of Atonement, after the priest had offered a sacrifice on behalf of the people, he would take a drink offering, usually something like wine, red wine, and pour it out on the base of the altar. It was very symbolic. It was a confession of faith. It was saying that even as the lamb had lost its life in the sacrifice, their lives were poured out in faithfulness to God. What's significant about the libation, the drink offering, is that once it was poured out, it was gone. It symbolized a life that is given completely and totally to the Lord without anything left over for any other purpose. You know, folks, we tend to segregate our lives into categories, don't we? I go to work, or I go to school, or I do this, or I do that, and then I get up and I go to church on Sunday, we segregate things out. We tend to think, here's my secular life and here's my sacred life. The Bible does not make that distinction. All of life is sacred. It's like a libation, a drink offering that is to be poured out to the glory of God. Paul's life had been that way. What's your life being poured out for? You know, in Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. What is your life being offered for or poured out for? Think about, think about that sometime. Every day of your life, is being poured out for something. You and I are exchanging a day of our life for something. Is it worthy of our lives? Paul goes on to say here, the time of my departure has come. The word departure here is very interesting. It was used in ancient times in several ways. It was used of soldiers breaking a camp packing away, collapsing their tents, folding them up, packing them away, and moving on to the next location. It was also used of ships when the anchors would be raised and, and the ship would sail out of the harbor. It would be used of an animal uh, being untied, unyoked from its responsibility in order to rest from its labors. You know, the book of Revelation carries an interesting parallel to this. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, John says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. And so the Bible points out that in heaven we'll be working, but at the same time we will be unyoked. We will rest from our earthly labors. Paul knows his, his time on earth is quickly passing. 
And yet, he not only has peace about dying, but he has no regrets about how he has lived his life. Secondly, he offers up words of victory about his past. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 7. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Paul had words of faith about his present because he was able to offer words of victory about his past. To, to speak of his past, he uses three images here in verse 7. First of all, the image of a soldier. Also, the image of an athlete. And then the image of a steward. First of all, there's the soldier in battle. If you were to examine the average Christian's life closely, you would probably find that they only appear to be fighting for the same things that the average man of the world is also fighting for. They're not fighting the good fight of faith at all. But Paul compares his Christian life to a faith, and he says, I have fought the good fight. Underscore that word, good, the good fight. The Greek word is kalos, or kalos, K-A-L-O-S, the way we would bring it over into English, which means the beautiful fight, the noble fight. You see, there are bad fights. There are those kind of fights of children on a playground. Then there are fights that are just not worth it. You've heard me say plenty of times before that I have no doubt in my mind a, a pit bull could whip a skunk, but is it really worth it? But there's one kind of fight that is good. It is the good fight. Why is the Christian life compared to the good fight? Well, because as Jesus said in John chapter 15, we fight against the unbelieving world. We fight against Satan and the unbelieving world. In Romans 7, we fight against the flesh. You know, Paul said the things that he wanted to do, he didn't end up doing. And he ended up doing those things that he didn't want to do. There was this struggle with his old man, his flesh. Then in Ephesians 6, he talks about the battle against principalities and powers in high places, spiritual warfare. So we're involved in all of this as Christians, this, this fight, this struggle, and we're to fight the good fight. Paul gave his life to the only cause worthy of devotion. He lived his life as a soldier of the cross of Christ. How do we do that? Remember what he said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4? He said, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Folks, be careful what you allow to entangle you in life. Many of the things that entangle you and I are not worth our time. And some of those things may even be dangerous to our spiritual life. Back to Dr. J.I. Packer a moment. Another book he's written is called Concise Theology. It was important to Dr. Packer that the church believe right. If we don't believe right, we won't act right. There's a connection between believing and doing. And so he always, Dr. Packer, 
Packer always fought in a good spirit for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He wanted the church to stand firm on sound doctrine, and he believed sound doctrine was worth fighting for. Folks, that's biblical. That's like Paul here. When Paul says, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, I've kept the faith. Well, then Paul changes from from the image of a soldier to that of an athlete. He says, I fought the good fight. That's the image of the soldier. I finished the race. That's the image of the athlete. We have a race to run. We have a course to finish. Just think about Hebrews chapter 12, what it says, that we are surrounded by this cloud of witnesses and we're to lay aside all the weights and hindrances and sins that become a part of our lives and we're to run our race with patience and fortitude, keeping our eyes on Jesus. We've all got a race to run and a race to finish. There's a lot of things that can get us off course. There's a lot of things that can discourage us. Folks, we need to be careful that that doesn't happen. We've got a race to run and a race to finish. Finish your race. You need to look around at faithful believers who've gone before you, men like the Apostle Paul, men like J.I. Packer I was talking about tonight, I've been talking about. Look around at these faithful witnesses. Look within at sin and hindrances in your own life and then look up, look up to God, look up to Christ. Finish your race. Paul's race began on the road to Damascus when God saved him. His race involved suffering. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. That was God's plan for Paul's life. That was Paul's race to run, to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And he was faithful in that. In addition to that, he wrote much of our New Testament. Paul's been telling Timothy here that God has a race for his life too. Timothy needed to run his race. You and I need to run ours, and we need to finish. You see, folks, it's not just a matter of starting the race. We need to finish. Will we finish our race? A saving faith is a persevering faith. Let me say that again. A saving faith is a persevering faith. It doesn't mean that you won't have bumps in the road or valleys along the way, but the overall witness of your Christian life is that you finish your race. You run your race and you finish it. You overcome the difficulties. Then Paul switches his last image in verse 7 is that of a steward. He says, I've kept the faith. You know, Jesus talked a lot about stewardship in his parables, didn't he? I think of the parable of the talents. One, one man received five talents, another two, another one. And they were all to be a faithful steward with what they've been given. God has made you and me stewards. Paul said of his own life in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, this is how one should regard us as stewards of Christ, as servants of Christ, rather, 
and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, he goes on to say here, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful or trustworthy. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Timothy was to be a good steward. Folks, God has entrusted you and me with certain things that we're to use for him, for his, his kingdom's purposes. We're to be good stewards. How are you doing with that? Paul was a good steward. He had kept the faith. He'd been entrusted with the gospel it was like a sacred deposit, and he had guarded it and, and kept it and been a good steward. And then he had shared it with others. That's what we have to do as stewards. A third thing I want you to see about Paul's testimony here, words of assurance about his future. He says, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see, folks, there's a reward at the end of the journey. There's a crown for you. It's the imperishable crown. In 1 Peter 1.4, Peter says to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. It's for all who love his appearing, Paul says here. Do you have that kind of assurance? Christianity is a resurrection faith. We have a sure and certain hope in the future. Jesus said in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me, he said. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Folks, we've got a future. This life is not all there is. You and I are going to live somewhere for all of eternity. And the Bible says without apology that Jesus is the only way to God. He's the only way to heaven. Do you know Christ? Have you been converted? If so, you have a glorious future waiting for you. Listen, folks, there, there's a bit of mystery when it comes to heaven because we've never been there before. But we have the promise of one who came from heaven. Jesus came in the incarnation. He died for our sin. He rose from the dead. He ascended back to his heavenly father. He promised that he's coming again one day, that where he is there we may be also. And it's a place where he's making all things new. All we have to go on is God's promise. But you know, God's promise is enough. Amen? His promise is enough. His word is all we need. It gives us that assurance. Paul says here, there's reserved for me the crown of righteousness. The saints of God will reign with Christ one day. Crowns, the crown of righteousness. 
Folks, don't buy into the lie that everybody makes it to heaven. Revelation 21 verse 8 says, But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. In Revelation 22, 15, it says outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Not everybody makes it to heaven. Not everybody has the assurance of a wonderful eternity. Jesus said the road to destruction is broad. But the Bible also says that through Christ, we can have confidence of going to heaven. Paul had that confidence, and he had that joy and that assurance. A couple of lessons I want to leave you with. First of all, the Christian life is to be lived in the present tense. When you look at this passage right here we've read tonight, we see that the Christian life is to be lived in the present tense. I, I don't know about you, but I'm so tired of this brand of Christianity that gives the impression that somewhere way back then, there in your life, all you had to do was say a few quick words, get a fire insurance policy, and then just go back to your life and live however you want to live it. Folks, that's not genuine conversion. That's not what these verses here in chapter 4 are communicating. I mean, listen to Paul's words. A, a life that is like a libation, a drink offering poured out. A good fight to fight, a race to finish, a faith to keep. Why are we surprised by these words? Or, or why do we move these words into some kind of category for super saints? Folks, this is what the normal Christian life should be about. Uh, a fight to fight, a good fight, a race to run and finish, and a faith to keep. The normal Christian life. There, this is not some kind of super saint category and then everybody else can just kind of do whatever you want to do while claiming to know Christ. No, remember Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what Paul is talking about here, that he's done in his life. Present tense Christianity. Secondly, a second lesson I see is the Christian life gives testimony of itself. Christian life gives testimony of itself. In, in other words, our, our works show if we've got genuine faith or not. It's what John said in 1 John. He said, if you say you know him and yet walk in darkness, you lie and the truth is not in you. If you say you know God, then what's your relationship to sin? 
Don't tell me you have a new relationship to God if you don't have a new relationship to sin. If you're satisfied to live in sin and walk in sin, John says you don't know Christ, regardless of what your words might say. John goes on to talk about God's words, God's commandments. Do you love his commandments? If you have no appetite for God's word, no appetite for the things of God in general, then you need to examine your profession of faith. John also talks about your fellow Christians. If you don't love your fellow Christians, if you don't love the fellowship of believers, the church, how in the world can you say you belong to Christ? Folks, I'm not denying that the Christian life has a definite beginning. It does. I'm not denying that at all. A definite beginning with a profession of faith. I'm just saying it, it is matched up. Our profession of faith that we make in the past is matched up by a life, a life that bears witness to the reality of that profession of faith. And that also is what Paul is talking about here. I mentioned to you one time before, if you are ever accused in a court of law of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? That's something to think about. Paul's Christian life was lived in the present tense and it gave evidence of itself. He finished well. J.I. Packer finished well. Can you imagine the homegoing he must have had last Friday. He finished well. How about you? Finish well. Looking tonight at the legacy of Dr. J.I. Packer, I pray one day a legacy like this will be my legacy and your legacy. God bless you.